1938. Not a great time. As people say, the part of history books where the chapters start getting really long. Why are they getting really long, Andy? Well, um, this was the year that Adolf Hitler formally took power uh, over the German government and military. And by the end of the year, they will have annexed Austria, one third of Czechoslovakia, opened at least two concentration camps, and humiliated, murdered, and caused overall just the death of hundreds of thousands of uh, Jewish people all over Europe. Just, just this one year? And yeah, yeah, actually, in just this one year. Ugh. Like, this is by the end of this year, like, Every major German city will have a plan for Jewish ghettos, right? Like, that's how fast everything happened. Uh, it's bad. Not everything is bad, though. Do you want to know why? Why? What else happened in 1938? Because the March of the Dimes was established to try to stop infants from dying of polio. Mm-hmm. They did a great job. They 100% succeeded. Uh, well, you know, I hear nowadays, actually, some infants. I was it. Didn't we see like a poster at the grocery store of like, these are the warning signs of polio? Yeah. Wild. The dimes would be very upset. <laughs> these dimes were like, we marched for something. We marched. We marched for at least 10 cents. If the dimes could give you their 10 cents about vaccination. <laughs> it would, did, do it. Uh, Don't die of polio. You know what else happened in 1938? What else happened in 1938? The life of Emile Zola won the Oscar Award for Best Picture. Hello, I'm your critic, Mavis Evergreen. I'm here to talk about not feminism today. I'm here to talk about how good movies are, I guess. <laughs> yeah. My name is Andres Reyes, and uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, mostly film history and world history. And uh, today we're also going to be talking a little bit about anti-Semitism, which I don't think either of us are really... Like, that prepared to, to do. do. Uh, I, I mean, like, I know Jewish people and I'm friends with Jewish people, but... <laughs> I'm not, and I don't. Not because I, <laughs> not because I don't... <laughs> <laughs> not 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 by choice not by choice um if it were my choice i it would be nice but uh i just i haven't had the the pleasure or the opportunity you grew to up in a hispanic catholic very, area very hispanic very catholic not a lot of opportunity to to befriend uh people of the jewish faith unfortunately <laughs> um I, I guess until this moment, I never realized that about you. And that's a very terrifying thing to hear from someone like, I never and I will never. <laughs> I will never. It's like, no, 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 no. That's, don't take it like that. Um, yeah, I just, it just, it just, I didn't know many, many Jewish kids growing up. This film. This film is a lot. This one was very long, in fact. Um, so before we really start like tearing into it, would you like if I read you a summary? I would love if you read me a summary. I'm sure it'll be very succinct and very short. It's going to be the shortest summary we've ever done. <clears throat> the Life of Emile Zola, directed by William Dieterle, is a biopic of epic proportions starring Paul Mooney in the title role. Emile Zola and his childhood friend Paul Cezanne live in a bohemian apartment in Paris, France. 
The introduction of the film follows Zola's early career of muckraking until his fateful meeting with a sex worker leads to the publication of the book Nana. This runaway success catapults Zola into the eyes of the wealthy and into their class. His friend Cezanne leaves for the countryside, still poor. He criticizes Zola's acceptance of his end-of-life complacency and laments the death of a great writer. But Zola is undeterred by this. He feels he has worked hard enough and has earned his now quiet, unchallenging lifestyle. On the other side of Paris, a grand conspiracy is brewing. Military secrets have been found at the German embassy, and the heads of military have put Jewish artillery officer Alfred Dreyfus in their sights. They consider no other options, and despite finding no evidence, convict him as a traitor, humiliate him in public, court-martial him, and ship him to solitary confinement off the coast of South America. While all of France was abuzz on the affair, Zola did his best to ignore it to the frustration of his close friends. Two years later, Georges Picard found startling new evidence, which identified Army officer Ferdinand Volson Esterhazy, but the general staff has no capacity for error. They ship Picard to Africa and pardon Esterhazy in a closed-door trial. With nowhere else to turn and her husband five years into his solitude, Madame Dreyfus pays a visit to Emile Zola. She pleads with him. His journalism had struck blows to those in power before, but Zola will not hear a word of it. She leaves heartbroken, forgetting her papers in his office. With nothing else to do, Zola begins to read them. The next night, Dreyfus's legal team is called into an emergency meeting where Zola reads to them his J'accuse, an open letter to the president informing him of the corrupt military. And as Zola expected, the government took him to court for libel, and the court is immediately biased. The whole of the trial is a joke at Zola's expense. He loses the case, leaves France for England, and waits. As the times change and justice moves ever forward, the old corrupt military is pushed out, and everyone gets to come home. And then Zola dies. Slut. A lot of meat on these bones. A lot of meat on these bones. How, how do we want to start talking about that? Do we want to start just talking about things that we liked? I think that's going to be the whole movie. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, is there, is there anything we didn't like? It was a little long. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a long movie. It was like two and a half hours, I think. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine where those cuts would be. Like, for a long movie, this is a very lean steak. Like, there's not a lot of fat. I was going to say, I think a, a big part of the movie's tension comes from Zola's loss, ironically, loss of poverty, and the fact that, and I do agree with this, with his change in status, he is no longer a writer of the people because he's not of the people anymore. And I don't think you have these moments of tension if we don't see him when he is poor like as soon as he starts getting famous that is where the cut happens right we see like a series of books fly past because that part doesn't matter it doesn't matter how he changes it just matters that he has changed the emile zola that started his career is not the same person that we spend 90 percent of this movie with and i think it's very effective i remember both of us being absolutely livid that this guy who like died and starved by his moral compassion was now this rich sellout in like Oh, it hurts. It, but like in a good way, right? Like it is very emotionally moving. And you understand, like he stood by his moral convictions his whole life, but now in comfort, he's lost them. Well, but I also mean, he has the self-assurance that he did all of the good deeds so he doesn't need to anymore. And like, it makes sense why he feels that way. And it, like as a character, you can see why he thinks he is allowed this comfort now. I, I don't remember who on my on my Twitter said this. Um, and I, I wish I could look it up and I, I could... um credit them for it but i remember reading this really long thread about like 
young people have a fire in them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're pretty young. We're angry all the time. There is a certain (laughs) amount of like anger that once you hit your 30s you kind of start to lose steam a bit right you can't you're more tired than angry at that point and people when they hit that age either let the fire burn out or learn how to feed it properly right there is really no middle ground between those two things because either you're still angry Uh or you're just tired of it all and you're just apathetic to it you get the feeling that emil zola by the end of his life is like listen i i carried that torch Mm-hmm. Am I not entitled to rest? And it's like, you can't, yeah, yeah, dude, absolutely. But the work never stops, yeah. right? And like, the problem is, is if you are a moral person, the world correct never stops being immoral, which is why you get tired and why you get apathetic. But also, who else is going to pick up the torch? Because no one did before you, and no one has after you left. And it is an interesting and difficult question to answer. There's uh, really interesting studies, uh, especially in the field of social justice, sociology, like following movements, between the links of new movements and old movements. You get a lot of people who are in their 20s who have this fire, who have this zeal. Yeah. Um, and comparing it to old communist movements that are not made up of like youthful people. Black Panther have, movement. A Black Panther movement that have sustained and like, they're much smaller, but how do we sustain movements? Um, how do we keep them going and things? And it's it's exhausting, and you're asking a lot of a person. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You're kind of asking them to give up their life to be this voice, and mm-hmm. it's a it's a heavy burden. Yeah, no, and I think Emil Zola is a just a very interesting person. I think his shift right mm-hmm. into that comfort is a real danger, right? Like. This is a writer who was incredibly popular with the common people, Mm -hmm. um, catapulted into financial success, and continued to write bad about the government until he was formally accepted into their class, right? The comfort was awarded to him to get him to stop. I think the movie does a really good job of like literally illustrating that. Part of the reason... He doesn't want to do this, even after he's been asked by everyone. Literally everyone in his life. Is because, well, he might get accepted into this prestigious academy of fine scholars as long as he's quiet. Mm -hmm. And the idea of like, what if not only this level of fame, what if I can get accepted by specifically this class of elitist scholars? Mm -hmm. What if I can get into that, right? Yeah. And I think the movie's just literally doing such a good job framing it as like, he wants to be the very best that no one ever yeah. was. To catch them is his real test. I, I don't think Emil Zola as a character ever enters the realm of like, fuck this guy. There are so many dudes in this movie that you're like, <laughs> fuck, fuck this, this guy. guy. <laughs> Emil Zola gets really close, right? He walks up to that cliff and he is about to step over that line. But finds that he can't. But finds that he can't, right? Like, I think it's one of those things where this movie is structured almost like a really long-form Columbo episode (laughs) where you know he's going to step in and do the thing. It just shocks you how How long long it takes for him to do it. And then also, just as a person who's not that familiar with this part of French history, that it doesn't work. We've all, I think, seen the newspaper, right? Yeah. With the big jacuzzi. Like, it's so famous for something that failed. But to be fair to France, France is famous for a lot of things that failed. Yeah. Well, I mean, and France, you know, it, it takes them a while, but, you know, you, you can always trust them to eventually start just mass revolting. <laughs> just like, 
We want revolution. When do we want it? Now. Why do we want it? There's an amazing line, I think, in the middle of this movie where one of the characters is talking to Emil Zola and he's like, you angered those of the Second Republic, those of the Third Empire, and now you're going to anger those of the Third Republic? And it's like, God, Jesus, France, get your shit together. <laughs> yeah, just just to reiterate, this was a very fast two and a half hour movie. It blew by. I didn't yeah. even feel it. Had a good time the whole way through. I don't think there was a point where I looked up and I was like, are we done yet? I feel like that's how you know a movie is bad is when you look away from the movie and you're like, are we done yet? Movie's doing a bad job. It is either too long or not interesting. Yeah. We get into, again, in the Columbo style, watching the crime be committed, seeing who did it, and then watching as it gets covered up and having to have the moment of like, how is this going to get uncovered? I I hate the sentence. Mm-hmm. I hate this sentence that I'm going to say. Uh-huh. I don't know if somebody were to make a movie about a topic like this mm-hmm. in this style yeah. that you could do it this way because this movie is very blatantly like corruption is bad. Good people cannot stop corruption. And also like corruption doesn't come from evil people it comes from selfish people people yeah selfish people who just who want to maintain power yeah they want to be perceived a certain way and like to them it's a zero-sum game like you give even an inch you might as well admit that you're a failure and like this like weird real politic is such a glaring way to look at it this idea that like the thing that makes corruption happen is just people wanting to maintain power is so it's cynical in a way that I don't think a movie today could do it right like in a movie today you'd have a person at some point just be like I'm going to randomly kill this dude so that the audience knows I'm evil I get you I do also hate saying the sentence like I don't think a movie like this could be made today and I and but I think for like one or two reasons I do kind of agree with that even though I don't like that sentiment one I think definitely a movie about American militarism could not be made in the style of this movie because one this movie is blatantly anti-military it is very like hey maybe having an army is good but the military structure is bad and it's corrupt and it doesn't work not normal what you say when you watch a movie from 1938 Mm, how refreshing how refreshing like a tea Uh, like a beautiful lemon tea how willing they are to be like they're not even smart they're just stupid and have enough authority that nobody gives a shit how (laughs) dumb they are the fucking gambit of like the entire scene where these fucking generals get together and they're like, basically, they've all agreed that they're going to arrest uh, arrest Dreyfus. Not only arrest, but frame Dreyfus. Frame Dreyfus for this crime is so comical and stupid. And like, Dreyfus is genuinely like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, a guy hides behind a curtain at one point. Like, yeah. And his entire reaction to it is like, you're insane. This is insanity. But like, who's gonna? Who can question them? They're all heads of the military. State. They're all heads of departments. It's not like they're geniuses. I feel like a lot of time when we portray evil, we portray they're an evil genius, mm-hmm. uh, and not like they're evil because of systems that put them in power. And like, they're just selfish idiots yeah. who are basically being boys about people's lives. Yeah, they're, they're treating them like toys. They're acting like that little kid in the movie who's playing. He's they're playing military. Um, even like it's their job, but they're essentially child, children, child. They're a child. They are one child. They're all collectively. Yeah, they're children because there's no thought 
of ethics or mm. of like doing the right thing. Like, no, the only thing that matters is is perception and yeah. power and maintaining it. And it's so fucking like, what's the word I'm looking for? Prescient? Yeah. Like, this is how people in the military like today act, right? Like, yeah. all they care about is optics and branding and like. Which is why it stood out to us as like, oh, like we wouldn't watch a movie made in America like this ever today because the military wouldn't allow it to exist like it simply wouldn't like the military is already so in the movies we watch to have a movie critiquing the very concept of like the structural integrity of no there's no no way the cia wouldn't allow it oh and in case our listeners don't know the cia and the u.s military regularly edit rewrite and make changes to american movie scripts uh that is a fact you cannot argue that like that is a thing that they do there are people in the military whose job it is to make sure that military optics and branding is maintained in American cinema. So if you're ever, you know, wondering why Marvel movies are like that, that's why. <laughs> and in case we weren't clear about it, the reason it matters, um, the anti-Semitism in this movie comes from the fact that one, all of these generals know who the breach is, who's selling their secrets, but he's one of them. He's friends with them. So instead, they frame a Jewish man, and nobody cares because he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie doesn't really get into it. Other, it doesn't harp on it. It doesn't. It doesn't make it a big deal, right? Like the movie does this, and it's almost a sleight of hand. Yeah. Right, where they're just going down the list of names, and as soon as they hit, because what they have is a list of of all the officers in a book, and on the left is their name, and on the right is the religious affiliation. And like they scroll down and as soon as they hit Dreyfus and his religious affiliation is Jewish, they're immediately just like, that's our guy. It has to be this guy. But they don't ever, no one ever comes out and says it's because he's Jewish. I think that's one, smart. It's tactful. Yeah. Two, I do think that it's coming from a place of, we know that that's what this is about, but we can't say it because we are in very politically heated times specifically right now in the year 1938 and i think that's part of why this movie also just feels so good is because this movie understood what was happening around it and i think in kind of a larger cultural sense this is why they chose to tell this story like one emil zola had just died so it was like timely in that way but on the other hand well i mean i he died only what 1908 so 30 years ago but that's recently but that's still yeah i was gonna say that's 30 years is barely a lifetime. Exactly. Sooner than most like mm-hmm. editorials go. It is a kind of a statement of its own talking about this falsely accused Jewish man in these times where people are being like persecuted for their religion. Um, but not making it like super loud, I think, is tactful and speaks to trying to have a greater message. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think this movie is less about the anti-Semitism and more just about over like kind of the injustice in in big letters yeah but but you can't but is aware of the fact yeah you can't you can't separate the anti-semitism from it for Mm -hmm. a variety of reasons like the entire reason that this scandal even happened is because dreyfus was jewish because he was an easy excuse and what and the reason he was easy was because he was jewish Mm -hmm. yeah it's just the same like this could have happened to any officer but it happened to this officer and like you should question that but also the movie is not about that because the movie is about corruption which again also very prescient yeah no absolutely what um, i'm saying is they're doing two symbolisms yeah they're they're well they're doing a lot they're doing yeah. so much right like 
So the other thing that they do is once we get to the proper trial, the boys club mentality of the military throughout the entire trial is so jarring. Like not only the boys club of the military, but also the boys club of the like judges and the fact that every time the military does something blatantly against the rules, the judges never call it. No. And it it does such a good job of being like, these men are in cahoots, even though they've never spoken before. They're, they are both in the same class. Yeah. They represent the power structure of the state. Mm -hmm. And they need to preserve that cohesion more than saving face to the public. And so they cheat because they know that Zola has a lot of sway. Yeah. That him publishing that letter has already put a dent in the armor mm -hmm. and so what they have to get ahead of it they have to demonize him they have to they put out like bad actors into groups of people to get them like mad up. at zola and riled up and i think it's great mm -hmm. there are very few movies specifically that get into the idea of like propaganda and what that means on like a mass movement and this movie is very much like yeah this is what like propaganda looked like in this time and this is how people did it and it was effective. Mm -hmm. I think what I think that surprised me, but also a thing that I think is great and I'm glad they kept it this way because they do change a couple of things and we'll talk about that later is that Zola loses. Yeah. Zola at the end of the day isn't really what ended up changing the system even though he was right. Even though this movie is about him, it's not actually him that fixes things. No, but he's just it, a man. He's just a man. And but what he does do is as a person of influence, of cultural power, is he manages to push the narrative. Yeah. That's his job as a writer, as a journalist, as a which, moral man, as a moral man who uh, as a man of letters. His job is to push the narrative, to question it. There is a, a kind of a revolving door concept that this movie doesn't touch, but I think handles perfectly, which is the idea that by simply questioning the narrative of the state, Zola is branded a traitor to the people. Mm -hmm. The state said that this was true and I questioned it and now I'm a traitor to France. And he's like, that's fucking bullshit. I love this country. Um, and like, and you see that like here in the United States, like anytime a journalist openly questions the motives of our country's government when it's like, we want to bomb Yemen more. And is like, maybe we shouldn't do that. Those journalists are branded traitors. This idea that like American nationalism is inherently tied to your wanting to suck military dick is absurd. Like yeah. our job as people is to question the state and the state's job is to be fucking afraid of it. <laughs> maybe above our pay grade, but an interesting question and something to think about in your daily life is the idea of who gets branded a traitor and why. There are quite a few people who get branded traitors in this film. You have Dreyfus, who gets branded a traitor for simply being in the wrong place and Jewish. You have the man who uncovers it in the military, just doing his job. Picard. Picard. He gets branded as a traitor and sent to prison. And then you have Louis Zola. His name isn't Louis. Emile. Emile Zola. A man who didn't even want to be a part of this, but it was just like thrown at him who questions it and is branded a traitor and has to leave the country otherwise be arrested and sent to prison like the and it's like why why mob mentality 
and uh, you're not above propaganda and all that good jazz. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that Garfield mean you are not immune to propaganda. Yeah. Their well, ears are closed because they are zealous, and that is something to be very afraid th- of. Yeah, this is this is a moment, and and it's a moment that like lasts up until the making of this movie of severe, vicious anti-Semitism, like the tied to nationalism tie- specifically. Yeah, exactly. This idea that like Jewish people aren't a part of your uh, community because they do not share your religious values or your culture is absurd. But like the implications of this case, of mm-hmm. what they did to Dreyfus, how they ruined his life, like helped lead the early Zionist movement. Like, don't know much about the history of the Zionist movement, but I can tell you that I don't agree with it. <laughs> this idea that in order for Jewish people to be happy, they need their own place. When 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 Jewish people say that, that's one thing. But when you say that as a person who is a part of Western culture and is not Jewish, that is anti-Semitism, right? Like, we need to be accepting of all people. Their place should it be It is just here. a better way of saying you should go back to your country. Yeah, separate but equal. It's segregation. And like the fact that this movie was able to kind of come out and put out this idea what happened was bad and we should question the state is, I think, pretty cool. This movie does a lot of cool things and is really subtle about it. Yeah, and I, I definitely like, I definitely disagree with some aspects of the movie. I disagree sure. with their great man narrative that they're trying to do um i think a lot of that just comes from how they've organized this film yeah it is hard to have a movie with a protagonist and not be like and then one great man fixed everything i think the thing they do to kind of get around this is that emil zola loses and they show like who actually did it but i definitely think that they they fall into it yeah the, they, they don't really get into the bits of emil zola that weren't great which would be kind of another way of being like, eh, you know, he mm-hmm. was a person, he had flaws. I also, I think, disagree with Emil Zola himself. I mean, I don't know how much of his, yeah, how much Emil Zola the person would agree with this portrayal, but specifically this movie's portrayal of Emil Zola is somebody who believes that if you're good enough at writing mm-hmm. and having an ideology, right? Like if you just believe in justice enough, it'll happen. Yeah. And I think... The movie kind of falls a little bit on itself here because the movie, the whole point of the movie is that it's not enough to just believe in justice. You have to go out there and do something, right, Mm -hmm. to lead lead by example, but also, um, like, the 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 arm of justice is only long because we let it be. We could make it shorter. (laughs) We could tug on that hand a little bit. We can we can bring it closer. But other than that, I think like what the narrative ultimately of this movie is trying to push that injustice is bad and corruption comes from fools who want to maintain power, I think is awesome. There's a whole conversation about when you tell these tales, you're inevitably losing people. There were other people who were also doing good works Mm -hmm. who weren't as famous, but were also doing like credible things. And do you have time for them in your narrative or does it add to it? And I think those things are worth talking about. But also, I don't know enough about this time period to really talk about it. Yeah, it, this is this is a weird period in in French history, right? Like mm-hmm. they've they've switched governments like three times. World War One is about to happen, but but I, I think the movie does a great job of capturing both capturing and criticizing the moment and criticizing the moment. Um, it's just a fantastic legal drama too. Like, oh, it's so good. Incredible performances by everybody in this movie. Everyone did great. Everyone in this movie is like fucking slapping. They're 110% um, doing the, even the guys who play like the shitty military dudes doing great 110%. 
A lot of good mustaches too. A lot of good mustaches. My only one like acting complaint is as Emil Zola ages, his wife doesn't. His wife His wife is, is an immortal vampire. Immortal vampire. That's why they have no children. Yeah, they they have no children. Emil I don't know if you know this, but Emil Zola had no children <laughs> with his wife. Hey. Check, check out that Wikipedia page. Um also, they are not in this movie. They're not in this movie. The children. Or their mom. Um, <laughs> oh, Cezanne. Cezanne. That, my beautiful boy, my, Cezanne. Our beautiful, our beautiful boy. We should add a new thing we do to our list of who is our favorite boy. Who's our favorite boy? Top king and all around good poor person, Cezanne. Uh, our favorite artist, Cezanne. You, you had a lot of opinions about his, his exit scene. I think uh, I think, I think that, that scene hit you a little more clearly than it did me in the moment. So Cezanne is his uh, poor roommate back when they're poppers. At first, so when Cezanne is introduced, let me just say, as a, 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 a bi king, I've decided to call yes. myself this moment. <laughs> yes, bi king, Mavis Evergreen. <laughs> bi king, Mavis Evergreen. Asexual wonder. I can do both. Wonder king. <laughs> They're introduced living together in this like studio apartment on the streets of like above the streets of Paris. Bohemian, yeah. Bohemian, idyllic. How every artist wants to get their start. Holes in every single window. <laughs> Sorry, I know that I understand that ho- windows are supposed to be like hole-ish in nature, but I mean that the glass has holes in it, <laughs> so it's a bad window. And I'm like, ooh, just two dudes living together in a one-bedroom apartment with. But then. Our boy Emil's fiance shows up and Cezanne's like, you can stay outside. And I was like, oh, kicks the fiance outside. Oh my, oh my. I, I feel like this isn't even like meta text anymore. He's not gay. Emil's only isn't gay. But the beginning is steamy. I, we don't know he's not. We don't know he's not. I think. But historically, it's not really been documented. No. And he's no. definitely had sex with a woman. Yeah. So for so, sure. So I just want you to know that they fucking gay baited this movie. Put it on the gay bait list. They only had one bed. <laughs> they only had one bed. Um, the other bed was behind the camera. <laughs> anyways, no, it's fine. It was, it was a fun introduction. It made me care a lot about Cezanne's character. Cezanne's great. And we don't see Cezanne again until, until the fight. kind of the climax of the he's, Dreyfus scandal. He's in the beginning prologue a little bit more, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in, he's in the beginning prologue. But once once the prologue is over, we don't see him again until the height of the Dreyfus scandal. Right where we've already seen Emil Zola like be like I don't I don't want to I don't want to give a shit about this anymore and um, him and Cezanne have a bit of a tiff. There's the scene is really good where Emil is going around being like oh, I went to Africa and I have this beautiful sculpture and it's the most rare sculpture that's ever existed and Cezanne is like hey I'm leaving to the countryside also I don't give a shit about your sculpture <laughs> and he's like oh my god this is a beautiful sculpture why are you leaving and. Cezanne is like, I, one thing that's brought up that I think is like so poignant. Cezanne is still poor. His best friend, maybe lover, super rich, and Cezanne is still poor. Yeah. And I, one, I think that's interesting because it brings about like quite a few questions. Like, did Emil offer Cezanne money? Because oh, if I, he didn't, that's a dick move. But I if bet he, he did. did. It really speaks to Cezanne's character that he's like, no. 
I'm an artist of the people and I can't take your money. And also it makes me feel like if that has happened, this discussion has come up quite a few times. The idea of like, how do I tell my friend that he's lost his ability to write because he, what he's going to write about his beautiful statue. So they have this discussion where Cezanne's like, you're a fucking hack and I'm leaving and I'm never going to talk to you again because I think you're a bad person now. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't say it like that, but that is that is the meta text. He literally is like goodbye forever. I'm yeah. not giving you an address. Right. What and he, it is what does he say? Um, Zola asks him like, "Are you gonna write while you're gone?" And he says, "No, but I'll remember you." And it is. I feel like it's kind of implied like he's remembering him when he was younger, and not re- he's choosing not to remember who he is now. I think the next time somebody is like, "Hey, are you gonna are you gonna shoot me a text?" We're like, "No." But I'll remember you. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Doesn't work as well, I think, in, in the in the era of email. But but at this point, you're like also annoyed with a male, and you really like bond with Cezanne, and you're like, yeah, you're right, Cezanne. He sucks now. And Cezanne, I think. Cezanne's a hero. I he's a hero. I do disagree with Cezanne's like thesis statement that <laughs> I I should be starving in order to be an amazing artist. I think that's bullshit. But I get what he's trying to say to to Zola, which is you're you're comfortable and like you don't he's have he's not only comfortable he is like ultra wealthy <laughs> he's ultra wealthy yeah when i say comfortable i mean this motherfucker is so rich he's got plinths and if you know what a plinth is you know that having one means you're rich as fuck like he's got multiple plinths a, yeah a plinth is a column that you use to display statues and sculptures um so the like rich this guy he's got like he's got fucking like emile zola carved over his fireplace like <laughs> rich and um but like yeah so when he says like you're you've grown too comfortable he like what he means is like you don't nobody wants to hear you tell stories about how nice your apartment is this is a criticism that was levied against jerry seinfeld but like and it's true but it's true right like the reason people liked you and the reason your writing was so powerful and so striking is that you were willing to be uncomfortable and make others uncomfortable. But talk about the stuff everyone had to deal with. Like, it's not about hashtag relatability, but it's about, like, confronting the deep secrets we all have and the de- and the things we all ignore and we shouldn't ignore or mm-hmm. telling jokes that are hashtag relatable. And, like, if you're rich, you can't do that because you don't have the same secrets everyone else has anymore and you don't see those uncomfortable truths because you're not walking through the alleys. And like, and it's it's so frustrating because Zola loves Paris. He loves going to the vendors. He knows them. He's on a first name basis with them. He makes people smell his lobsters. He makes people smell his lobsters. He loves, like, he he still does the thing. He still interacts. Right. He's not like secluded. He's not taking like a lone blacked out fucking limousine all throughout Paris. He's not like Howard Hughes. He is genuinely enjoying life. But he's not allowing the bad stuff in anymore. He can choose to ignore it, and so he does. And that makes him a bad writer and, more importantly, a bad person. You criticize these things when you are a part of them because you couldn't really do anything about it other than yell at others to change the things that were terrible. Mm -hmm. And now you have the power, authority, and money to change those things, and you're choosing to ignore them. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't really like diagnose that question, but it is the question Cezanne brings up, and I think it's valid. Yeah, the lead actors in this movie, Paul Mooney, um, 
was was a Jewish man of Ashkenazi descent, right? Like from Austria Hungary. Like his people are the people who, in a couple of years, are going to be persecuted and murdered, right? By the very like systems of power that he is asking us to question in this film. This is a movie that kind of exists in bl- in a blind optimism about where the world can go be- because this is a world before the Holocaust. Yeah. Kind of a weird beacon of hope, but also terror. This movie that has three Jewish actors in it. Yes. Which is a very large number for a movie, especially and, a movie that won an award. And two of them are leads and yeah. one of them wins an Oscar for best supporting. Which is great. Like 10 out of 10. But also, this happened the year before, like, the Holocaust truly gets started, and that's terrifying mm-hmm. in a looking-back sense. Like, this movie couldn't have known, but I think it makes this movie almost more Oscar-worthy in its, like, contextual time that this, like, pro-Jewish movie, pro-Jewish actors, anti-Semitism movie came out right before the Holocaust. It's a movie that's speaking to a time before World War One, right? Like- yeah. We want to. We all want to pretend that um, that anti-Semitism didn't exist until Adolf Hitler and died with him, right? But like, that's not blatantly untrue, right? Like, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish sentiments in Europe and in America and the United States were so strong and so virulent. And the fact that this movie came out at all and was lauded and is trying to say something about the historiosity of anti-Semitism existing mm-hmm. in a country that in less than a decade is going to be trying to fight off Nazi regimes is it's a lot. Yeah. And it, it's like, it's, it's almost one of those things where I kind of look at it. I'm like, this movie's a little too late. Right. Like, yeah. and it didn't know <laughs> that it, <laughs> it was. It didn't know. It just, it makes it a real gem in a way that again, the movie couldn't have known, but also, I don't, I think we talk a lot about the idea of movies being a part of society in talking about the society. And I think this is genuinely the first movie that has done that in a way that was more than like, let's talk about war. Because as much as I, I love... All Quiet on the Western Front. As much as I really enjoy the movie All Quiet on the Western Front, there is a part of me that's like, it's not that hard to be like, let's reflect on war, a thing that killed thousands of people. Like that's a pretty easy movie to think about and to put out because most people agree that war is bad. Mm-hmm. And so this movie talking about these much more niche in that like it doesn't affect all of the population subjects, I find so much more valuable. It's literally one person. The entirety of this movie's crux hinges on the simple notion that even one person matters, even one person, Mm -hmm. right, being persecuted for a crime that they did not commit completely calls into question our entire system of government. Yeah, it has to. Because if because if your government, God, I wish it had yeah, to. <laughs> yeah, right. But that's what this movie's saying, right? Is yeah. that it should? It's not about making mistakes. Mistakes happen, but the unwillingness to admit those mistakes, admit those mistakes, to question them, to right wrongs, that is corruption. That is injustice, and something needs to be done about it, right? Yeah. Like the United States has a quarter of the world's incarcerated population, and more than a quarter of them are people who have been locked up without a trial and have yet to have one. That is injustice, right? That's not a mistake. That's systemic. This person in this movie being persecuted for being Jewish was not a mistake. It was systemic and it needed to be righted. To allow yourself to just walk through the world blindly with your fucking fingers in your ears is you saying that 
It's okay. That it's okay that these lives didn't matter. And one person even says, one of the people in the military staff even says, like, it's just one guy who gives a shit. I think the quote, because it also stuck with me, was, it's just one guy. What does it matter compared to the beauty of France? Yeah. And I think a lot of people see systemic issues very much in in that greater than that light of like, it's just a couple of thousand lives. What does it matter to the glory of America? Yeah, that fucking like Spock bullshit. Yeah. Right. The needs of the many outweigh the twisted. Twisted into like- Not that I disagree with those words. I just think that they're empty enough that they can be twisted. No, no, no. I, I think it's one of those things, right, where it is not even the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. It is the needs of the hashtag brand outweigh the needs of quite a few, right? Because like nationalism isn't anything other than brand allegiance, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I think there's value to be had in community pride in like I grew up here and I want to make this place better. Like that is invaluable. That is great. You should be proud of the people around you and your community, but a nation doesn't really mean anything, right? Because, mm -hmm. like, one, you don't know everyone in the nation. I doubt you agree with everyone in this nation. You shouldn't. <laughs> like, nationality is so ambiguous and vague and kind of worthless because it can't be anything other than the hashtag brand. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about, like, the actual man and the actual history of what happened. Oh, Dreyfus, the actual person, Dreyfus. I want to talk about Dreyfus and, like, the historiography of what's behind this movie yeah yeah no for sure wikipedia. this is a real thing this is a real thing that actually happened and although wikipedia is kind of not the best place to go for learning about stuff uh you can start reading about it there and you know worm your way through it but the dreyfus affair or i think in france they just call it l'affaire because apparently they've only had one there's a real thing that happened this this louis dreyfus was a real fucking person and unlike the movie he does not really get a happy ending he he gets pardoned. Yeah, in the movie, it ends with him being taken back into the military and getting all of his accolades back and basically just being given back his life. Uh, and in real life, no, he got pardoned he, like he, 10 years later. Like not only that, but him being pardoned essentially means that his trial was governmentally seen as valid, which is bullshit. Yeah. But also it meant that like, this guy went to Zola's funeral. He never got to meet the guy because Zola uh, died, which we should also talk about at some point. And like at the funeral, somebody tried to assassinate him. Like that's thankfully the guy did get to be with his kids and his wife again. But that guy, like his life was destroyed. He was brandished a traitor. It was all over the news. And every France hated him. Every single choice he made in his life every little morsel of controversy or anything that could be gleaned about him was found out and it was like dredged up by by the by the military and by anti-semite uh, anti-semite journalists to slander him and well into world war 1 like france was kind of always 50-50 split on like what to make of it and the guy fought in world war 1 at, at the ripe young age of like 35 at the same rank he had when he was fucking accused. Yeah. Like he never moved up in the military. Like genuinely super interesting. If you can get your hands on it, I also recommend reading like a translation of the letter uh, uh, J'accuse. The movie has kind of like a shorter. Punchier. I wouldn't say punchier. It's still a really long. Like, yeah. But it, it, it's, I genuinely recommend reading it. It's good writing. It's fantastic journalism. 
And Milzola died because his heating was poorly insulated. And the movie, what's the word I'm looking for? Chekhov's guns that for like minute one. Minute one of the movie, he's like, he's like, I I hate hate drafts. drafts. I hate open windows. I want every window to be sealed forever. I love heaters. I love just sitting near them. I'm going to die of a draft one day. It's very good. (laughs) It's really good. It's very funny. It's it's so funny because I think what like at the end of the movie when Dreyfus is like, "Where's Zola? Do I ever do I get to meet the man who was my savior?" And like dead ass a little kid fucking Muzi. Extra, extra, read all about it. Zola died. <laughs> and everyone's like, "Oh my god, Zola died." We Zola all died. just found out right now thanks to this Muzi. I would like a tuppence, sir. I would like a tu- Well, stop yelling out the headlines, kid. <laughs> See, this is bad salesmanship. This is I think this is why Newsies went out of business because they kept yelling out the headlines. I'm like, what more do I need to know? Keep that shit. You just gotta yell. Thing happened. You wanna know what happened? Give me the give me that nickel. You know, Ella, you <laughs> extra, read- extra, read all about it. Zola. Zola? Zola? Mm? Zola? Extra, extra, read all about it. Corruption? Mm? Extra, extra, the Titanic. <laughs> Something happened to it. I bet you want to know. Why extra, isn't the Titanic here? J'accuse. I wonder who. Who? Who? To be fair, Zola was smart. Yeah. J'accuse. J'accuse. You have to read line two to figure out who he's accusing. Yep, 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 yep. I think my favorite scene in the movie is after the after Zola loses the trial, all of his lawyer friends are like, Zola, you have to leave the country. You have to. You can't go to prison. You have to keep writing. You have to keep spreading the word about Dreyfus's innocence. They can't silence you in Britain. And he's like, I, I'm not a coward. I'm not going to run away. And then his lawyer friend like grabs him by the lapel and is like, Sola, sometimes it takes courage to be a coward, to be a sniveling little freak that runs at the first sign of danger. Sometimes it takes courage to be that man. <laughs> and then Sola's like, fine, I'll pack my bags. <laughs> I think uh, my favorite scene, he gets his first famous story from uh, Nana, who is a woman of the night. Mm-hmm. A a snake worker. in the sheets. No, don't uh, say that. <laughs> the apple that had fallen from Eve. Yes. Um, from Eve. I don't know. I'm just making shit up. Anyways, uh, and it's like, ah, oh, cool. And a question me and Andy immediately asked was, is he going to pay her? And they have a scene where he like goes and gives her money discreetly. He does also give her a copy of his book, book. which is a little bit, a little bit I fucky, think, but I get it. I think part of it is just the acknowledgement of like this: the story is about you. Like, this is yeah. Th- I'm not gaslighting you. This is your story. This is yours. But yeah, and I was like, I'm really glad this movie took the time to be like, no, Zola wasn't an asshole who abused this woman's story. Don't know if he... Did that in real life, but, but it's nice in the movie. It's nice in the movie. It's definitely a good moment. Yeah. Um, I think it just makes I, you really understand what kind of a man he was. And yeah, he was. Before he right. was a rich little prick. Yeah. So um, I know that no one's going to be able to guess. Do you think this movie deserves an Oscar? Yeah. <laughs> I genuinely think so. This movie is so effective. It absolutely works this is what this movie is and when i say this is what this movie is i don't mean in like a metaphorical sense i mean as a as a product that's being made mm-hmm. uh this was a movie to showcase paul mooney's acting ability he had just won an oscar this was supposed to be his time to shine right to show the world this is what i can do as an actor and he fucking like exceeds in this role 
Like, he's not doing a shitty French accent. He's not. I don't think anyone has a French accent in this movie. No, not a single fucking person has a French accent in this movie. It's just such an effective film and definitely, like, worth watching to, to kind of. I was going to say, I think that it deserves an Oscar, too, even more than that. This is a movie you should watch. Yeah. If Like, if you're listening to this, you should go watch this movie. I know we've spoiled all of it for you, but, like, it, it is so effective and it is so good. It's only two and a half hours. It's shorter than, you know, like a season of whatever is on Disney Plus right now. So, like, you know. I mean, it's shorter than like most movies coming out. It's shorter than Batman. Oh, God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, my favorite part of uh, my favorite part of Emil Zola is when the Riddler shows up (laughs) and he's like, Emil Zola, what happened to him? (laughs) Maybe a riddle will give you a clue. He shows up at the house and he's like, I've left some riddles. And he's like, I don't want any riddles anymore. I'm too old for this. Sorry, just a real quick, uh, actually, now that I'm talking about it, uh, a a conspiracy theory that I absolutely do believe. There is a small contingent of uh, people who at the time believed that Zola was murdered, that his heater was installed incorrectly on purpose in the hopes of killing him of carbon monoxide poisoning by somebody in the high up in the government. And I totally believe that that's true. He did die very soon after Ver- he moved back to France. Like days, days, like yeah. after he moved back to France, like Gigi. wild. I don't think it was. I think it was. It was more like a year, but still, very soon, very sudden too. Also, he had just gotten it installed. I'm just saying, it's a lot there. It was the Riddler. <laughs> he died, and he's like, "No, it was a riddle. The mm. riddle was to open the window. The riddle, the answer to the my. Did, mm, you failed my murder riddle, Emil Zola. You were supposed to." open the window through which yonder the sun breaks <laughs> so let's talk about how old these actors were i got a lot of people for this one because i actually cared about this movie <laughs> so paul muni who played the lead emil zola he's wearing old makeup for a lot of the movie he is wearing old makeup for a lot of the movie i know he was already kind of a famous actor see he was 40 on the dot he was born in 1895, which would have made him 42 Dang. at the time this movie was made. No, I'm going to give that one to you. It's really good. Gloria Holden, who played Madame Zola, uh, Alexandria His Zola. Baron Vampire Wife. She doesn't really talk a lot in this movie. She's mostly just there to be like, oh, honey, you writing again? Let me open a window. Oh, I can't. <laughs> but uh, it's fine. Um, I'm going to say she is... She's 33. She had gone with her good instinct. She was born in 1903, which would have been over 34. Dang. At 34 I, at the time of record. At the time that's of even closer. Uh, I still get that one. Yeah, no, I absolutely. Points for Mavis. And absolutely nailed them. Gail Sondergaard, who played Madame Dreyfus. Madame Dreyfus. Stellar character in this movie, yes, by the way. We haven't really talked about her. Um, She's going around trying to solve her husband's false accusations, and uh, she's great. Also, they have this really lovely moment of her and her kids like playing and she's like playing the piano to do cool sound effects for them and it just it's very nice it's a very cute moment Mm -hmm. they're playing like soldiers which is less cute but it's a it's a movie that um this is a movie that shockingly doesn't have a lot of compelling female characters in it but who would have thought madame dreyfus really stands out really really stands out uh except for i think the unfortunate scene in which she just has to Look at Zola very like I don't even know how to describe the emotion on her face, but she maintains that emotion for like a solid three minutes. And uh, I didn't like that as much, but is she's great. Her like the actress and the character are fantastic. Yeah, 
I think she. I'm gonna. I think she's a little bit older because she's just she's pulling a lot more weight in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna say that she is 36. Gail Sondergaard was born in 1899, which would have made her 38 at the time I'm of this movie. You're great. nailing it. You're fucking nailing it. Apparently, all I needed was to enjoy the movie. <laughs> yeah, if you once you enjoy the movie, you pay a lot more attention. Uh, Joseph Schildkraut, who played Dreyfus. The man Dreyfus himself. is also in a lot of old makeup for most of this movie. He looks terrible by by the end of his stay in the on that island. He which looks is genuinely, correct. He should look terrible. Um, um, which is a shame because he looks so. He's got like a handsome little mustache at the beginning. Yeah, of the movie. no, he's an adorable man. I say as like a compliment. Like he he looks like a good man to marry. You look at him and you're like that man. That that's, that's a, a good that's man. a good man to marry. You know, and your grandma's like find yourself a good church boy. She's talking about Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. Wrong. She's thinking of the wrong church, but she's correct. She's correct. You should should go to a synagogue. I think that he is thirty nine. He was born in eighteen ninety six, which made him forty one. I refuse to be closer than two years. Two years, yeah. It's your you have a re- you have a very consistent standard error. It is two years. <laughs> and finally, Vladimir Sokolov, <laughs> who play who play. Yeah, I know. Who played Paul, who played Paul Cezanne. Oh, I, I do love Cezanne. Cezanne looks pretty old this whole movie. Even in the beginning, he's... I'm going to say he's like 46. Continuing your streak, oh! he was 48, born in 1889. <laughs> and solidly one of the older actors on this list. I do Cezanne wanna... also looks great. Also has a very good little mustache. Yeah, he's got a he's got a great just like goatee beard combo. He really he does he's... look like what you imagine an artist looks like. Yeah. You imagine a capital T artist. For sure. I do want to point out that uh, Joseph Schildkraut mm-hmm. won an Oscar for this performance, which mm-hmm. he fucking deserves. Yeah. Because he nails it. And um, would later go on to play, I think his name's Otis Frank, in the film version, The Diaries of Anne Frank. Oh. The one that everyone's seen, the one that came yeah. out in like 59, plays um, Anne Frank's father in the in the film. Who are you? Who am I? Who am I? Two, four, six, oh, one. No, and everyone knows the passcode on my computer. <laughs> They're going to steal your loaves of bread. <laughs> <laughs> to prison. To, <laughs> to prison with them. So yeah, I've been your critic, Andres Reyes. I've been your critic, Mavis Evergreen. And next time we're watching You Can't Take It With You, which won Best Picture and Best Director oh. and is the return and conclusion of our good old buddy Frank Capra. Wild. Frank Capra. I can't Capra. believe his last movie was about like airplanes and the fact they have to leave like five ounces liter waddle behind. <laughs> 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 it's a comedy, right? Yeah, I, you were gonna... <laughs> I was going to be like. <laughs> Heavenly fiction. We heavenly. We heavenly fictionalize. Heavenly fictionalize this movie. No, yeah. Jesus said it was okay. He was like, let's fudge that part with the wife and kids.